Well, good morning, church. It is good to be here with you today. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith, and I am obviously for ugly Christmas sweaters, pro-ugly Christmas sweater today. Well, today is week one of our Advent series called Messy Christmas. Now, for some reason, most of our modern depictions of the first Christmas make it seem so peaceful, so serene. You've got little eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus, thank you, packed in straw, laying in a manger with a few extremely well-groomed farm animals looking on. Mary is swooning over her newborn. There's some random kings from afar who have come to see Jesus, and somehow Mary and Joseph are cool with them just like being there watching on. There's some shepherds too. The night is beautiful. The stars are bright. It is idyllic. It is peaceful. It is, well, it kind of looks like this. Everyone say, ah. But the reality of the first Christmas story is that it was not idyllic. It was super messy. Just think about this little part of the story that's depicted in the book of Luke. It says, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in, clo in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Can you imagine being nine months pregnant, having to travel close to 100 miles where you are either walking or sitting on some sort of animal that bounces up and down uncomfortably the whole time, and then you get to your destination and the only place for you to sleep is a barn. My wife sent me this little cartoon, and while it's not exactly what the Bible tells us happens, I imagine it's probably not too far off. Take a look at it. <laughs> yep. Maybe a little too real for us sometimes. So whether it was Mary and Joseph looking for anywhere they could stay, or the way King Herod was secretly trying to find little baby Jesus and kill him, or the fact that Joseph and Mary and Jesus had to run for their lives as political refugees after Jesus was born. Whatever part of the story we look at, the first Christmas was definitely not idyllic or peaceful. Now, why does this matter? Well, because just like God was present and at work in the mess of the first Christmas, he is still present and at work in the mess of our lives this Christmas. And that's the big idea behind our new series, Messy Christmas. We're going to look at how Christmas helps us understand how God is still at work in the mess of our lives. But before we dig into today's mess, let's pray. Father, thank you for another chance to gather, to chat, and drink coffee and make fun of our pastor's ugly Christmas sweater. It is a joy to be gathered as your people. Lord, this week we do have 
things that we want to lay before you as well. We think of all the families in the last couple weeks who have lost loved ones. Here specifically in our church family, we had several memorial services this week and more next week. We pray for these families, Lord. Give them peace and encouragement. And we pray this Christmas season, God, that you help us be a people who spread your hope everywhere we go. By the way we talk and act, by our generosity, by our attitudes, help the world see your goodness through us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, I feel like around Christmas, you run into two types of neighbors. On one hand, you've got the neighbor who is all about their decorations. They decorate their house with lights. They put inflatable reindeer and huge nativity sets in their yard. They are all about decorations, so much so that you wake up in the middle of the night and you cannot fall asleep because their yard is so brightly lit up with Christmas lights, it's giving the sun a run for its money. And then you have neighbors who are all about Christmas food. Cookies, fudge, toffee, candy canes, every type of sweet bread and cinnamon roll known to mankind. And you wake up every morning to a surprise paper plate filled with goodies and covered in Christmas-themed saran wrap on your porch. Now, just so you know, I personally fall into the food category, but I'm less the type of person who wants to cook all of the Christmas goodies and more of the person who just wants to eat all of the Christmas goodies. Can I hear amen from you food eaters out there? Thank you. I cannot say no to Christmas confections. And even though this is the season of fudge squares and nicely decorated Christmas cookies and gingerbread, my favorite Christmas sweet is actually some sort of jelly-filled or custard-filled donut that has a Christmas theme. And it just so happens that I have one right here with me. Oh, it looks good, doesn't it? It is hard to resist. It's just so pretty. I think it might even be whispering to me. What's, what's that you say, donut? You want me to take a bite out of you in front of all these hungry church people? I think I can probably do that. Mm, oh, so good. Oh, oh, man. It looks like I made a mess out of myself. Oh, but so good. And that's the problem with Christmas confections, isn't it? They look so good, and when you see them, all you can think about is mm, how good they are. But then they make a mess of your hands and your face, sometimes your shirt. And if you're like me, they might even give you a bellyache because you just don't know when to say no to their wonderful goodness. Ah, they look so good. But man, can it really make a mess out of you. Now, this isn't too far off from what sometimes happens in our lives, is it? There are all sorts of things we encounter in life that for some reason look so good to us. But in the end, they just end up leaving us with sticky fingers, a mess on our shirt, and maybe even a mess in our life. There are all sorts of things that we do, whether it's because we're believing a lie we've been taught, or because our self-control is lacking, or because we're pursuing a good thing in the wrong way, that we end up doing that ultimately makes a mess of our relationships, or our finances, or our families, or our careers. And Christmas 
It is one of those seasons that makes us feel the messes that we've made in our lives even more. Well, here's the good news. The Christmas story teaches us that God comes into our mess and he forgives us and he gives us new life. Check out this passage from Matthew chapter 1. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, I really want to focus on one verse in this passage because it's especially relevant to our topic. And that verse is verse 21, where it says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And to help us see how Christmas teaches us that God comes into our mess and offers us forgiveness and new life, we're going to ask two questions of this verse. First, we're going to ask, what is meant by the word sin? And secondly, we're going to ask, what does it mean that Jesus will save his people from their sins? So, let's hit that first question. In a lot of ways, sin, in its religious sense, it's a word that's fallen out of vogue. We can use the word sin to refer to a shade of lipstick or an especially opulent flavor of chocolate cake. But in any sort of religious sense, it easily becomes an offensive word, which honestly is kind of a shame because I think the rich and nuanced concept of sin we find in Scripture can actually be a really helpful way to help us understand ourselves and the world around us. You know, actually, the English word sin is used to translate several different Greek and Hebrew words, each having a slightly different connotation of what it means, which means that our word sin really has a wide range of meaning. But the Greek word we have translated in this verse as sin, it's the word hamartia. And hamartia, like any word, it can have kind of a, a large range of meaning, but one of the prominent meanings it carries with it is the idea of missing the mark. In fact, we see this word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to either a group of archers or guys with slingshots who, when they shoot, they never hamartia. They never miss their mark. If an archer shoots at a target with their bow and misses what they're aiming at, then that archer hamartia. They miss the mark. This idea of missing the mark, it actually brings a lot of clarity to the biblical idea of sin. Because when we miss the mark, 
it's not that we are not trying to hit the right things. It's just that we miss what we're aiming at. We shoot for genuine and meaningful love with our spouse, and instead of hitting our intended target, we end up being self-serving in our relationship, and we create deep wounds and divides with the person we love. Or we shoot for being good and generous members of our community, but instead of hitting our intended target, we end up using our generosity as a tool to help us get what we want. Or we shoot for being more healthy with our bodies, but instead of working towards a reasonable and realistic level of health and fitness, we end up getting obsessed with how our body looks, and we dedicate time and energy and money to our attractiveness, which creates all sort of emotional problems with ourselves and relational problems with others. Hamartia, what we translate as sin here, is the idea that there is something broken inside of us that makes it so that even when we are aiming for the right things, we miss our mark. And because we miss the mark, we make a mess. We make a mess of ourselves. We make a mess of our relationships. We make a mess of our relationship with God. Now, I love this metaphor of missing the mark because when I was a kid, my parents let me watch that really old Robin Hood movie with Errol Flynn as Robin Hood. Anyone know what I'm talking about? A couple of you, I am showing that my parents never let me watch good movies as a kid. Well, I loved that movie, and Robin Hood, he was so cool with his bow and arrow. So what did my dad do? Well, in a desperate attempt to actually get me out of the house and doing something, rather than sitting around all day, he went out and he bought me a little kid's bow and some arrows, and he built me an archery range in my backyard, and with a ton of supervision and attention to safety, he started teaching me the fundamentals of target archery. Now, here's the thing I learned about archery from him. If you want to consistently hit your mark, it's all about having repeatable form. So, I brought a bow with me today because I want to explain what I'm trying to explain here by showing you. So I'm going to grab it and I'm going to bring it up here so that you understand my point. Now I don't have any arrows with me, just a bow so that you can see what I'm talking about. So let me run back here and grab it. Now like I said, the key to hitting your mark is having repeatable and consistent form. You've got to get your stance right about shoulder width apart. Then you've got to grip the bow in the right way, in such a way that when you release the arrow, it doesn't torque the bow from side to side. And then, probably most important, you need to have the right anchor point. And your anchor point, it's the spot that you draw your bow back to and release the string from. If you don't have a good and consistent anchor point, you might think that you're looking at the right thing and aiming at the right thing, but that's not where your arrow is going to go. Check it out. If I'm aiming at that window over there, but my anchor point is way over here, I'm going to shoot to the left of it because my anchor point is wrong. If I'm anchoring my shot in the wrong place, then my aiming won't line up and I will miss the mark no matter how hard I try and hit my target. Does that make sense to you guys? 
And that's the thing with this particular concept of sin. It's not that we don't want to do the right thing. It's not that we don't want to be the right people or live the right way. It's that we, as sinful people, anchor our hearts in the wrong places and it causes us to miss the mark. If my anchor point is wrong, I will always miss the mark. Say I want to be a successful employee, but instead of letting that desire be anchored in love for God and the desire to live into his priorities, I instead anchor myself just in that desire to be a great employee. So now, when I have to choose between being with my family or spending more time at work to hit those crazy, audacious sales goals I made for myself, if my heart is anchored in the wrong thing, what am I going to end up doing? I'm going to make a mess of my family. Or maybe what I'm aiming at is raising great kids. But instead of anchoring my efforts in Christ and his guidance for my life, I anchor my efforts in cultural expectations of success. And instead of hitting the target of raising great kids, I will end up placing unhealthy expectations on them and fracturing our relationship for years to come, making a mess. Or maybe I'm just aiming at being happy. But because I haven't anchored my efforts in my relationship with Jesus and his teachings, I simply end up buying whatever advertising convinces me will make me happy. And instead of hitting the target of happiness, I end up in debt with a bunch of dusty toys in my garage, just as unhappy as I ever was. Again, making a mess. Here's the point. When our hearts are anchored in the wrong thing, we miss the mark. And when we miss the mark, we make a mess. We make a mess of ourselves. We make a mess of our relationships with others. We make a mess of our relationship toward God. This is a big part of what our passage means when it says sin. That we anchor our lives in the wrong thing and therefore always miss the mark and end up making a mess. But here's the deal with our passage today. It says that she'll give birth to a son and that she's to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Man, that is great news. At Christmas, God sends Jesus and he will save his people from their hamartia. He will save them from their mark-missing, mess-making selves. But here's where we've got to ask that second question, because if we don't, we might end up with some unhelpful assumptions. So what does it mean that he will save his people from their sins? Well, it means at least the following two things. First, it means that Jesus offers to make us right with God. Now, our sin, our hamartia, it fractures our relationship with God, and it ends up putting us at odds with him. Now, I'm going to admit to you, as a millennial who was raised in the 90s and early 2000s, passages like Romans 6.23, which say that the wages of sin is death, or this concept that my sin puts God at odds with me, it's always been hard for me to grapple with. Because everyone's cultural upbringing, it makes it easier to believe some aspects of the biblical description of God over others. 
For example, if you went back to 7th century Germanic times, like in Germany with a knight errant who is honor-bound to uphold justice and defend his kingdom, that 7th century knight errant, he might love the idea of an all-powerful God who brings justice on wrongdoers. But if you try to tell him that God wants to forgive people who don't deserve it, well, that would be unimaginable to someone who grew up thinking that strength and justice are the most important things in life. But I grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, where we were taught that your purpose in life is to figure out who you truly are and then to live your true self. And once you figure out who you are, people should love and accept and encourage you for that, no matter how weird, stinky, strange, or off the wall your true self is. For people who grew up in that setting like me, our cultural assumptions make it really easy to believe in a God who loves us, but really hard to accept the idea that God would clearly define right and wrong and would be wrathful towards what he declares is wrong. Because of my cultural setting, the concept of God's wrath towards sin, it's always been something that I either want to avoid or simply just explain away. So in college, when I was really struggling with this concept of God's wrath, and by wrath I mean his settled, constant, and consistent opposition towards sin, one of the voices that I found to be especially helpful was actually Yale scholar Miroslav Volf. Check out this series of quotes from him. He wrote, Though I used to complain about the indecency of God's wrath, I have come to think that I actually need to rebel against the idea of a God who isn't wrathful against the sight of the world's evil. So Wolf, he starts here by saying, hey, I started off thinking that the notion of a God who had any wrath was unfitting. God must not be wrathful because I don't see how any wrath can exist with a God who describes himself as love. But then something changed in his mind to the point where he says that he started to think that he actually needed to rebel against the idea of a God who isn't wrathful against the sight of the world's evil. He goes on to say, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. His love incites his wrath. Wolf's idea here is that it's because God loves so much that he gets angered at sin. Now, I don't have kids, but I do have a dog. And if you came and started to hurt my dog, you better believe that I would actively and unpastorally oppose you. <laughs> and I am sure that you feel that way about your kids, your spouse, your friends. When others wrong them or hurt them, we don't feel apathetic. We feel angry and justifiably so because something wrong has happened to someone we love. Well, God loves your spouse, your kids, your friends, and your dog more than you do. It wouldn't make sense if a loving God wasn't outraged 
when the people and things that he loves are wronged. If we are shocked and angered and outraged because of the horrific acts we see in the world, how should our God, God who loves people and his creation more than we do, feel? Fulf's point is that we can't have a God that loves without a God who has wrath. The two go together. And we should want a God who's angered and opposed to evil and wrong acts in this world. Because if he isn't, how can he actually be loving? But Wolf, he doesn't stop there. He then says, if God is wrathful about those acts, and he's speaking here about the truly horrific acts of evil in the world, if God is wrathful about those acts, he must necessarily be wrathful about all wrong acts. In other words, Wolf is saying that there are truly horrific acts of evil in the world. But much of what keeps destroying God's good world that he created, it's not the few truly horrific acts we observe, but the countless small sinful acts that normal everyday people do. The lies, the gossip, the greed, the abuse of our planet that most of us participate in. He continues, Once we accept the appropriateness of God's wrath, there's no way of keeping it out there, reserved for others. We have to bring it home as well. I originally resisted the notion of a wrathful God because I dreaded being that wrath's target. I still do. But I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others if it was, as if it was my weapon that I could aim at targets that I particularly detested. It's God's wrath, not mine. The wrath of the one impartial God, lover of all humanity. If I want it to fall on evildoers, I must accept that it will fall on me. This makes me think about the famous quote from G.K. Chesterton. His local newspaper asked its audience to write in, explaining what they thought was wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton penned this simple response. He said, Dear Sirs, I am. Because of our sin, we make a mess of our lives. We make a mess of the lives of people around us, a mess of the world around us, and a mess of our relationship with God. So when our passage says that Jesus came to save us from our sin, a major part of that is that he came to forgive us our role in the mess-making and restore our relationship with God. This is the good news of Christmas, that God looked at the mess we've made, and although it appropriately incites his wrath, because he's loving, he said, I will send my son to be born on earth, and he will save my people from their sin. It's just like what John 3.16 says. God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are forgiven and we are made right with God. With Christmas, we learn that God comes into our mess and offers us forgiveness. 
If you have never taken the time to ask Jesus to save you and to tell him that you want to live with him, I want to invite you to do that right now. You can simply pray along with me in the words on the screen. Jesus, I admit that I have sinned and fallen short. I believe that God sent you to save the world. Forgive me and make me right with you. Help me live a new life of your ways. Amen. But when our passage says that she'll give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, it doesn't just mean that Jesus came to make us right with God. It also means that Jesus comes into our mess to offer us new life. Remember way back to the beginning of the sermon with the archer illustration, I said that if your anchor point is wrong, then you will always miss the mark. When we place our faith in Jesus and commit to trying to follow him in his ways, we enter into this amazing relationship with him where he helps us start to anchor our hearts in him and to live into his ways. This drastically changes the way that our lives work. And while we will still miss the mark more than our fair share, we begin to live how God intends, and we start to see how that shapes our lives differently. In other words, God enters into our mess and helps us live a new life that is anchored in Him. Church, with the first Christmas, God came into the mess of the world, into the absolute chaos of first century Israel, and into the hard and crazy lives of Mary and Joseph. And why did he do that? To save his people from their sins. And the first Christmas story, it teaches us that God comes into our mess and offers us forgiveness and new life. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for Christmas. The fact that you came to earth, born as a child, to grow up and sacrifice yourself so that we may be made right with you and receive new life. God, you are good to us. We praise you. Help us this week to live into this reality that you have forgiven us and given us new life. And let us be people that live as daily examples of that, living into the new life that you instruct us so that others can see the great message that comes with Christmas. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.